Hey boys, I hope you're doing well. I'm so glad that we have another week uh, to study God's life-giving word together. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we'll be spending time uh, today. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context. We've seen that Matthew has been uh, revealing to us two very important themes thus far. The identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. We've seen in the first two chapters uh, that Jesus has been presented as the son of David, the son of Abraham, uh, the one who will save his people from their sins. He's been presented as Emmanuel, God with us. Then in chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the messianic king, uh, the one who fulfills all of the hopes and the promises from the prophets. Then, uh, most impressive of all, in Jesus' baptism, we hear the voice of God himself declaring boldly that Jesus is my one and true Son, the one whom I love and the one with whom I am well pleased. So, so far, we've been presented with Jesus as the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, um, the King of the Jews, Emmanuel, God with us, the Messianic King. <laughs> just, just impressive stuff. But now we come into a very uh, interesting chapter in Matthew 4, where after this, this great mountaintop experience in his baptism, Jesus is once again led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted by the evil one. Now the question we have is why? Why in the world would, would this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? Well, hopefully we'll answer that question. But the main thing that I, I want us to see is, is from this chapter, uh, we can have assurance that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And therefore, we are encouraged to fixate our eyes upon him in faith. Uh, there's marvelous treasure of hope and encouragement and assurance that we find in this passage. So let's read it together, starting in Matthew chapter 4 with verse 1. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, brothers. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful uh, for the means which you've given us that we might study your word together. And we pray that as we look into this mysterious and profound and encouraging text that you administer to our souls, 
that we wouldn't uh, just be informed by your word, but transformed by it. And we pray this in the name of King Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, brothers, I'm just going to tell you, I think I've told you this before, but I'm just, I'm a lousy evangelist. <laughs> I'm really awkward with it. Um, I'm not comfortable in my own skin. A lot of folks have this gift. I certainly don't, which is why one of the reasons uh, where I love to share my faith is at sports clips. And uh, one of the main reasons is, is because my hair uh, cutter, my hair therapist, whatever their title is, um, they can't go anywhere. Uh, no matter how awkward I am, they're stuck with me for a solid 30 minutes. <laughs> and then that's one of the reasons I love to share my faith. And usually this is how it goes. Um, it's when they have the clippers usually, and they're doing my sides that they ask what my profession is, what I do for a living. And I tell them I'm a pastor. And it's right about then that they freak out <laughs> and take out a big stripe in my head um, because they know it's coming. They know that I'm about to tell them the gospel. And uh, so I tell them the gospel, and I usually end up with some form of an inverted mullet, this just giant streak in the back of my head. Um, but one time, uh, many years ago, I was sharing with this woman, and she expressed love for Jesus, which excited me. She goes, oh, I love to talk about Jesus. Barton, let me ask you, do you ever think about Jesus when he was a boy or maybe a teenager? And I said, no, ma'am, I don't, not usually. And she said, well, I do. I, I have three boys my my own. And whenever I watch them do the things that boys do, you know, they, they uh, fight with one another and they steal each other's toys and they wrestle and they take each other's food off each other's plate and, and do all the things that, that kids do. I just think, well, oh, man, that must have been what Jesus was like. And it warms my heart thinking that when, when I look at my kids. And I said, oh, boy, I, I knew what was I knew where she was coming from when she said that. I said, ma'am, by any chance, are, are you a Mormon? And she said, yes, how'd you know? I knew she was a Mormon because uh, they believe that Jesus was, was less than divine, that he wasn't perfect and that he sinned, that he's capable of sin. And in their framework, that, that isn't a big deal. But as, as Bible-believing Christians, we know exactly why that's a big deal, don't we, brothers? It's clear, it's clear in this text. The temptations which Jesus experienced in the desert held eternity in balance. Because if Jesus, who knew no sin, did in fact sin, well, there is no Savior. There's no Easter. You and I are still held in bondage, um, trapped in the, in the misery of, of the fall. But if Jesus overcomes, if he endures, well, then he proves to be our only hope, man's only hope. Redeemer. And we're going to see that in this passage, and there's great encouragement that we can take out. But um, so I, I told the lady the gospel. I'm not sure whatever happened uh, to her. But I'm willing to bet that you and I don't run the temptation of diminishing Jesus's baptism, uh, or rather, Jesus's divinity. But I want to make sure that as we study this text, that we don't fall the other end of the spectrum. Because sometimes it's easy for us to diminish Jesus's humanity. And when we see Jesus experience the trials and the tribulations of this life, sometimes it's easy for us to think, well, well Jesus is God, and therefore he didn't experience uh, these things in, in the same way that, that we do now. And what I want us to understand is that that mistake is just as grievous 
as the other one of diminishing his divinity. The Bible presents Jesus as fully man and fully God. Uh, two natures joined, not mixed, but joined in one person. And sometimes it's hard for us to make heads or tails of, of how that works. And, and the Bible, quite frankly, doesn't do much to help us to understand that more clearly. That's just simply how it presents Jesus as, as fully God, fully man, man's only redeemer. And brothers, that's how we must understand him and view him and receive him and follow him. It's crucial that we do. Because as fully man, listen, Jesus identifies with us. He identifies with us in the desert. He identifies with us. He understands all that we need, and he provides all that we need as our perfect substitute. Additionally, he serves, too, as our uh, true high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he experienced all of our temptation yet remained without sin. He experienced the full brunt of temptation. Why? Because he never sinned. Therefore, he experienced the full blow of temptation. You and I have never experienced the full blow of a temptation because you and I stumble before we get to the end. But Jesus, but he, he remained without sin, so he knows what it means to be tempted. So as man, uh, fully man, Jesus understands all that we need. He provides all that we need as our perfect substitute. He is our perfect high priest. And as fully God, Jesus is able to accomplish all that we need. As God, the grave could not hold him. Jesus rose from the dead three days later, conquering death, achieving victory for his people. And he ascended to his father where now he advocates for us. Now, what we understand is that in the desert, the, sat or the, the evil one, Satan, was trying to attack that, to attack all of that, to disrupt it. But praise be to God, he failed, and Jesus emerged victorious, proving that he is exactly who he says he is. And in so doing, giving us all the encouragement and the assurance that we need, following him as his disciples in this life. Now, as we look at this passage, there's three things uh, that I want us to pay attention to. First off, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at the battleground of this temptation, this whole scenario, why it happened, what happened, the battleground. Secondly, we're going to look at the three temptations themselves, and there's two things that I want us to look at, the tactics of the enemy and the response of Jesus. And thirdly, we have some lessons that we're going to take away from this that we'll cover very briefly. But first off, the battleground, verses 1 and 2. What we have here is Jesus enters into the desert, is uh, the battleground for the establishment of the covenant of grace. What is happening in, in Matthew 4 is extremely significant, and there's a couple of things I want us to take note of. First off, I want us to pay attention to the devil's motive. Now, you'll understand that this scenario it happens right after um, this that, that glorious mountaintop experience that Jesus had in his baptism, where God the Father himself affirms Jesus' identity as his son, and as well as God saying that you are it's in you whom I love and, and am well pleased. It's this beautiful experience that that Jesus um, had at, at his baptism. Um, now, we also remember from last week that that affirmation that Jesus received from his father came from two different Old Testament texts. The first part of that affirmation, you are my son, came from Psalm 2, 
which we saw was a messianic prophecy, right? Where it says that Jesus is the true king whom all owe allegiance to. He is the victorious king. But the second part of that affirmation that Jesus heard in his baptism from God the Father came from Isaiah 42. You're my son whom I'm well pleased. Isaiah 42, it's a suffering servant song, which tells us that that victory is possible only through the road of suffering. Now, as we're going to see that these temptations, they really attack that second aspect of Jesus's affirmation from his father at his baptism. And therefore, we understand what the main motive of the devil was. He is tempting Jesus to rely so heavily on his identity as God's son that he might abandon um, the path that God had set before him, the road of suffering, that he might abandon the, the way of the cross. That, that's the devil's motive. All the, these temptations are a little bit different, but the core of them is the same. Satan is, is attempting to prevent Jesus from accomplishing his mission, namely saving you and me as our representative. That's what's happening. That's his motive. Now let's think about then God's purpose. Because God has purpose in this too. You'll notice in verse 1, it says that, that uh, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the desert to be tempted. Now, what in the world is going on there? Why would God lead Jesus into the desert to, to experience such things? I mean, first off, we know from the Bible that God never tempts anyone to do evil. We know that from James chapter 1, verse 13. So what in the world is going on? Well, the word for tempt is also the word for to test. So we know Satan tempts us to evil. We know God doesn't do that, but God does test his people. He tests and proves our character always for our benefit. He does that with his only begotten son. He also does that with his adopted children like you and me. And we see that through the scriptures. What we also see through the scriptures, including in this passage, is that God will often use the purposes and the intent of the evil one against themselves to accomplish his holy and good purpose. What God does in this passage is he hijacks the, the evil's intent or the, the evil one's intent to accomplish his good and holy purpose. This is essentially like a cosmic jujitsu move where God is using the momentum of his enemy to accomplish his purpose. And what is God's purpose in all of this? It's to prove that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is the Messiah, our only hope and our only redeemer. Now, there's two pictures being painted of Jesus that, that demonstrate this. First off, Jesus is being presented as the new Adam. Uh, G, Matthew is showing that Jesus is the new man. He is our new representative. He is second Adam, and he is stepping into the universal human story. There's many different examples and parallels that, that Matthew gives us that shows us that Jesus is recapitulating the story of Adam telling us that he is the, the new Adam, our new representative. A lot of examples, but, but here's one. Both were tempted to eat something outside of God's will. In the Old Testament, Genesis 3, it was an apple. Here, it is bread. So, for example, in, in the lush garden, in the lush and beautiful garden where, where Adam uh, was filled, he was satisfied, he was cared for, um, his, his stomach was full, he was in close proximity 
with God, enjoying deep fellowship with him, disobeyed God and led all of us into ruin. But now you have Jesus, and he's not in a lush garden. He is in a barren desert, starving, isolated, and alone. But he obeys God and brings in redemption for all who believe. You see, Adam, um, by, by his acts of unrighteousness, disobeying God, he failed in the covenant of works, thereby plunging all of us into an estate of ruin and of sin. But Jesus, through his act of righteousness, through, through obeying God, he, he enters into this desert and he achieves victory for all who believe. He recapitulates the story of Adam, where Adam failed, Jesus uh, succeeds. Uh, Paul gives us the commentary for this in Romans chapter 5. I encourage you to go back and study that chapter. It's beautiful. But here's the summary verse in chapter 5, verse 18 of Romans. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all who believe. Uh, Matthew is showing us that where our first parent, our first representative failed, Jesus is the new Adam, our new representative, and he succeeds. Not only is Jesus being presented as our new Adam, our new representative, he's also being presented as the one true son, a new Israel. Now, again, there's lots of parallels that we see in this chapter, but here's, here's just a couple of examples. In the Old Testament, after and when God was rescuing Israel from Egypt, God um, names all of Israel his son. Now, we've already seen in Matthew 1 and 2 that, that uh, Jesus as, is identified as God's one true and only begotten son. Additionally, in the Old Testament, after or rather before Israel is to be tested in the desert for, for 40 years, where, by the way, they fail miserably, um, they come through the Red Sea. And in the New Testament, Paul tells us that was their baptism. Well, before Jesus is tested in the desert for 40 days, where he succeeds in obeying God, he comes through his own baptism, his own Red Sea experience. Uh, where, where Israel failed in representing God, in obeying God, in loving God, and in mediating the blessings of God to the nations, Jesus succeeds perfectly. He, he, he loves God. He obeys God. He represents God perfectly as the new Israel, as the one true son. The point is, even where the best of us fail, Adam is the best of us, brothers. And if he fails, we do too. But where the best of us fails in loving God and obeying God and in following God, where we have rejected him and turned away from God and what he calls us to do. Isn't it so encouraging then? And isn't it so crucial to see Jesus as the true new man, as the true son, enter in that desert willingly and emerge victorious for our sakes? Uh, brothers, this is God's purpose. Jesus willingly goes into that desert to, 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 to have cosmic battle with the evil one, to emerge victorious in order to represent you and me for our redemption. That is God's purpose. 
Eternity was held in the balance in that desert, and Jesus achieved victory. So as we look to this chapter, let us marvel and let us give glory to God because what we see happening, Jesus does for our sakes. So that's the battleground. It's essential. Now, secondly, I want us to pay attention to the individual temptations in verses 3 through 10. And I want us to focus on two things in particular. First off, the tactics of the evil one. The, the temptations that Jesus experienced in the desert were unique to himself, but the tactics are the same. And he will use those same tactics with us each and every day as Jesus' followers. So let's pay attention to those tactics. Secondly, I want us to pay attention uh, to the response of Jesus, how he overcomes these temptations for a couple of reasons. One, for us to, to see the glory and the power and the beauty of Christ and his victory. But also, too, so that you and I might have a model and how you and I might overcome temptation in this life as well. So first off, the first temptation. We see this in verse 3 where the devil says, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, others uh, name this type of temptation differently. I'm going to name it the, the temptation of self-gratification. Because as we've already uh, seen, this first temptation plays on the very strength of that affirmation from Jesus' baptism. Namely, his sonship in the love of his father. And so just like Adam before him, Satan is trying to lay a seed of doubt regarding his father's love. So, in, for example, in Genesis 3, this is what uh, Satan does with Adam. Adam, did God really say? I mean, you're God's man, but did God really say that you couldn't eat of the tree? That's unusual. And notice the tone there is, well, that's not loving at all, is it, Adam? That's not loving. A loving God wouldn't do that. That's the same thing that he does to Jesus. Jesus, aren't you God's son? Well, of course you are. Then why are you starving? That doesn't make sense. No, no, no. That, that's not loving at all, is it, Jesus? And, and both of those attempts, there is the lie that God cannot be a loving God if he restricts his people which we fall to that lie all the time, don't we? But it's so dumb that we do, right? Because as parents, we know what it means to lovingly restrict our children. There's plenty of things that we do to restrict our children because we love them. I remember uh, very fondly one time when my son was a wee bit toddler and he was crawling for the toilet and he was about to lick the commode. <laughs> and so I just had this sheet of white come over me, cold sweat, and I ran over there and snatched him away from the bathroom toilet um, because I didn't want him to lick it. But he looked at me like I was the devil. Father, how could you possibly prevent me from licking this delicious porcelain? I mean, and the reason that he acted that way and thought that way is because in his um, small mind, he, he didn't have the knowledge of what was really good for him as his dad did. And that's the same thing in our relationship with God the Father. We have limited finite minds, twisted minds because of the fall. But he knows what's good for us, so he commands us, and he leads us, and he restricts us. And that's what we're seeing here. But at the core of this temptation is the desire for self-gratification. It's the idea that God has not provided for me like I think he should. Therefore, God does not love me. Therefore, I can't count on God, and it's up to me to, to, meet, to meet my own needs. And we definitely struggle with that. 
I mean, listen, God has given all of us desires and needs, God-given desires. And they're good ones that are to be satisfied in the Lord and in his provision. But in our sin, we've distorted those desires. And we've distorted the way that we meet those desires. So we think to ourselves, God has not met this meet, this need or this desire in the way or in the timing in which I think is best. Therefore, God doesn't love me. Therefore, it's up to me to meet these needs. And so we go off and do what we think is right. And it's so easy for us to do that in a very prosperous nation in which we live. It's very easy for us to abandon God and go meet our own needs. We struggle with that. But praise be to God, where we fail, Jesus overcame. What does he say? He says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. You see, Jesus understood that his ultimate need, his greatest desire, uh, was not the bread or the pleasures of this world, but rather it was the word of God. And he desired that more than than anything else. Because listen, he knew God's word. He knew that his mission was to be the bread of life, not to feed himself, but to, but to feed the world. And even though that he had this legitimate need, he was starving. He believed the all-satisfying, all-sufficient goodness of God. And so he, he meditated on God's word. That was his food. That's the life that he needed. That's the satisfaction that he needed, the ultimate satisfaction, abiding in God's word. So Jesus overcame this, this first temptation. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that his father loved him in spite of what circumstances said. He, he was laser focused on the will and the mission that God had for him ultimately because he believed God's word and he stored it in his heart. Second temptation, we see in verses 5 through 6, it's to presume upon God's word. Essentially, what we see happening in verses 5 through 6 is Satan saying, Okay, Jesus, I can see that, well, you know God's word. <laughs> Obviously, you do. You're the incarnate word. Of course, you're a student of the Bible. That's why he quoted for me Deuteronomy 8. I get it. Well, I know God's word too, Jesus. And doesn't Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12 say that, that God the Father will command his angels concerning you, that he will never let harm befall you? That's what it says. Do you believe that? I of course do. So let's put this theory to test. How about we, we go to the top of this beautiful temple and you jump off? Now, of course, you know that you don't have to worry because his angels are going to swoop in and, and save you. So you don't have to worry about being hurt. But but don't you know that as, as people see this happen, they're going to know who you are. They're going to know that you're the Messiah. They're going to know how awesome you are. And they're going to follow you. And it's going to be great. So let's just go ahead and do it. Now, that's my summary of what the tactics of the evil one are here in this second temptation. But, but notice that there's two core temptations in what, this say, in what the evil one is saying. First off, he, he is tempting us to manipulate God's word to say what we want it to say. He is saying that it's okay for us to take a promise or a passage out of context, uh, to not interpret it in light of the greater counsel of God's will and, and God's character, but to take it out of context to manipulate it to say what we want it to say. Uh, there's another temptation there too, and it's really uh, the ends justify the means. 
to, to, to pursue the advancement of God's kingdom using worldly weapons. Now, as sinful people, even as Christians, we struggle with this all the time. On the personal level, we often take promises and passages out of context and manipulate them. For example, God is love. It's right there in scripture. God is love. But we take that often out of its context, out of the greater counsel of God's will, divorce it from God's character and say to ourselves, well, because God is love and I want to be happy, that means God really wants me to be happy too. And I really want to do this because it would make me happy. And, and of course, God's okay with it because, well, God is love. See, we, we divorce the text and the promise from the greater counsel of God's will and his character, and we manipulate it to say what we want it to say. And we do that all the time. We also, uh, and we've seen in church history especially, that oftentimes Christians, even entire churches or movements within church history, often um, say that the ends justify the means. And, and so they might even have a, a good, noble mean of, or rather end of, of seeing God's kingdom to bear on earth, to advance his kingdom. And so they say to themselves, well, let's just do what the world does. Let us grab for and try to hold on to power like the world does, because once we're in a position of power and authority, well, we're going to use it and leverage it for, for God's kingdom. But brothers, we, we got to understand, even when our motives are to advance God's kingdom and to see earth as it is in heaven, as soon as we divorce ourselves from the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount, we've lost it. And we see people do that all the time. We struggle with that. But again, thanks be to God, where we fail, Jesus overcame. What does he say? He quotes scripture again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. It is written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this is what Jesus is saying. He is saying to Satan, Satan, you want me to tempt my father. But don't you understand? He is not the one that is to be tested. He can't be tested. He has caught the Father. I am the one that has been called to be tested. You're testing me, and I know what my responsibility and obligations are. My responsibility and my obligations is not to challenge my Father, but to trust Him wholeheartedly. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. You see, Jesus is, is telling us that true faith means trusting God. Always within the confines of, of his greater counsel of his word and, and, and his character. You see, to trust God means, um, uh, uh, or rather true faith means, this is what God's word says, therefore I will do this. Presuming upon God's word says, well, I am a Christian, therefore I can do this. And of course, we struggle with that, but glory be to God, where we fail, Jesus overcame. And he overcame because not only did he believe God's word, he trusted it with his life. And there's a difference between those two. Believing is saying that this chair will hold me up. Trusting is actually sitting in that chair to hold you up. And that's what Jesus did. He believed God's word. He believed God's will. He believed that God was good, and he trusted it with his life. And that's how he overcame. Now, the third temptation we see in verses 8 through 10, it's self-exaltation. In verses 8 through 9, Jesus is taken to a very high mountaintop. Now, whether if this is an actual physical mountain or a vision, we're not sure. I believe it's a vision because Jesus is shown all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor and in their glory. Now we're we're thinking to ourselves why on the why in the world would that actually be tempting to Jesus right because Jesus knows that 
that all of the kingdoms will be given to him, that all power and authority in heaven and earth will be given to him. So why would even this be an allurement to him? Because he knows that he's going to receive it anyway. Well, remember, Jesus also knew that the road which led to such authority and victory was the roadway of humiliation. The roadway in which God set before Jesus was humiliation, then exaltation. The roadway to to victory, the roadway to power and glory and authority was suffering and, and pain and his own death. And so the temptation then is to seize God's reward now and to dismiss the way of the cross. That's what the temptation was. And Satan is basically saying, Jesus, you are God's son. Why are you acting like a servant? Jesus, you are king of the cosmos, so why are you worrying about a cross? All of this is yours anyway. It's your right. Take it and seize it. And isn't that, brothers, how Satan tempts us often? He tempts us regularly to live in light of the here and now, to live for the here and now, and to sidestep the will and the way of God. Oftentimes, you and I are tempted to live the inverse of Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, where Jesus says, uh, deny yourself. This is the way of discipleship, by the way, how we're supposed to follow Jesus. He says, deny yourself. Die to yourself. You're not who's important anymore. You're not living in light of you. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. But oftentimes we we live the inverse of that, where we exalt ourselves, forsake the cross, and go whichever way we want to go. And we struggle with that. But thanks be to God, where we fail, Jesus succeeds. What does he say? For it is written, uh, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see what's being said here? What's being implied is that to disobey God is to obey and worship the serpent. And Jesus understood that. And Jesus also knew that the supreme duty of every single human being and everything is to worship God. And he knew that everyone who humbles themselves before God denies themselves and obeys him and follows him will be exalted on the day to come. And so, therefore, Jesus willingly chose a suffering obedience to God because he was unwilling to exchange that end-time exaltation, that end-time glory that will never fade. He refused to exchange that for a temporal, unsatisfying glory from Satan now. And in so doing, brothers, he achieved victory. Because these three temptations, they were microcosms of the temptations that he would experience all the way up to the cross. But him achieving victory now shows us that he is going to achieve victory, which of course he did. And by denying these temptations, by taking up the road that that God the Father had set before him, he achieved victory. He was given the name above every name. All power and authority in heaven on earth was given to him. 
He rose on the third day, achieving victory, securing victory for us. And also in so doing, he shows us what it means to be human. He shows us how to live a life that is pleasing to God and glorifying to God. Humiliation, then exaltation. In the desert, Jesus emerges as the new Adam, our perfect representative, as the new Israel, as the true son. And he achieves victory for us. He knew God's word. He stored it in his heart. He trusted God's word and he lived it. Now, lastly, the lessons, really quickly, what do we learn? First off, we see, beyond a shadow of a doubt, brothers, that Jesus is our victory. And therefore, we must fix our eyes upon him in faith and rest in his finished work. Because, listen, the, the, the ultimate purpose of this passage is not to show us how we can overcome our temptations. It does that. But that's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is to show us that we cannot stand on our own. Therefore, we must stand on Christ by faith. Brothers, Jesus is the victory. All of this is about Christ. He is our victory. And what we see him accomplish and do in this passage and elsewhere, he does for our sakes. It's as if we did it because he is our representative. The gospel tells us not only does he take our sin away and wipe us clean, he gives us his righteousness. So everything that we see Jesus do in this passage, it's as if we did it in him. We are more than conquerors. Brothers, Jesus is our victory. This is our hope. So fixate your eyes upon him and rest in his victory. Secondly, we do, however, need to be ready for battle. Because as his people, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. I know we don't often think like that as as Westerners. But we are very much engaged in in spiritual warfare. Paul tells us that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but it's with the powers and the principalities and the evil one of this fallen and broken world. And the temptations that Jesus experienced, they were unique to him. uh, But the, the core of them is the same way in which the devil attacks us. He tempts us not for the purpose of choosing this or that sin only, but ultimately he tempts us into sin to cause us to forget and dismiss the perfect love of God. For us to dismiss the the will of God, the mission of God and our identity in Jesus. That's That's his purpose. And therefore, you and I must stand ready and be on guard. Now, thirdly, how are we to do that? Well, we do that by knowing, trusting, and living God's word. As we just saw, every response that Jesus gave Satan, he quotes scripture and he trusted what the word of God said. Jesus, (laughs) he hungered and he thirsted for God's word. He stored it up in his heart and he had a hunger for it more than he even had for food because Jesus, he had a superior pleasure and a superior treasure and all that God said so much more, infinitely more than anything that Satan could offer him. And he stored it in his heart and he knew it and he used it. 
And the Bible tells us that as God's people, we are given that same defense. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that we must take up the whole armor of God to withstand temptation and to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil and his, his temptations. Brothers, we must store God's word in our hearts. We must know it. We must make our home in it, abide in it. Because as we do, the power of those temptations that begin to, to or usually cause us to, to struggle, the power of them begins to break. Because we have our hearts and our minds filled with an infinitely better treasure, an infinitely better bread, the word of God. Which is why I'm so excited that you and I are, are, are studying God's word yet again this semester. So brothers, my prayer is that each of us would fixate our eyes upon Christ and trust him for everything as the new man, as the son of God, as our redeemer, that we would trust him for everything and fixate our eyes upon him. And my prayer is also too that by the power of the Holy Spirit and by our mutual encouragement, you and I would cultivate an insatiable hunger the bread of life, God's word, the only thing that could ever possibly fill us and to satisfy us. I love you, brothers, and I hope you have a good day, and I hope you found encouragement in today's lesson.